So like there's some re- real headwinds here. And um, I think the biggest X factor of all of it is the, is the labor market. Like I, I don't see a ton of it. I'm not a you know labor market economist, but I play one on this podcast right now. <laughs> um, Hello, and welcome to the Atomicast. This is Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor with TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the Director of Special Operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors and all-round Elon Musk cyberbully. Uh, thanks for, <laughs> for joining us today. I am in a good mood. I don't know about you both, but um, no. I just... Is it because of all your cyberbullying? Yeah. No, I've actually been trying to. Well, I've been trying to 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 you know keep that to uh, the most necessary um, uh, of opportunities. (laughs) No, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop you right there because everyone can see your Twitter activity. (laughs) So let's all go to you know this past week and just see how what light what does light Twitter trolling mean in Ed's mind. So actually, last week I I did not tweet all that much because I was busy um, doing a little bit of work and uh, having a little bit of fun in sunny Florida, um, which was a lot of fun. Uh, unfortunately, I missed Alex in Miami. I'm sorry. Uh, he was. I'm sorry. No, it it happens. Uh, yeah, um, and and so I was actually at uh, I was doing my first consulting uh, gig was with um, AUVSI, the the trade organization that. Uh, represents uh, autonomous systems of all kinds. Um, and I am can helping you, them. Can you tell us what you were working on or is it like Alex said, top secret? Yeah, tell us. I can tell you actually. Yeah. Um, so AVSI wants to uh, standardize nomenclature uh, around ground-based autonomous systems. Um, no way. They do. Uh, and, you know, I think we all know we've, we've discussed nomenclature a lot on this show. Um, and so longtime listeners will probably be familiar with the fact that it's a very tough tough subject to tackle. Uh, it's even harder when, you know, uh, the folks having to come to agreement are, you know, competitors and people in totally different spaces. You know, we had in the room, we had, you know, people in autonomous trucking and we had people in, you know, legged dog robots and all kinds of different things. And, um, so, uh, it was interesting. Um, you know, definitely a little bit of a, a different crowd than, um, than I'm used to with, you know, mostly just dealing with on road sort of more automotive type of autonomous systems. Um, so, but it, but it's a, it's a fascinating challenge and look, you know, as hard as it is, um, to do anything with standard standardization of nomenclature, um, I really admire that, that they're trying, you know, trying to do something. Um, and I think that no matter what, just having, you know, robust conversations about, about language, uh, the language that we use, um, is really important because, you know, things are going to continue to evolve. It may not even be a great idea to standardize really important stuff yet because we don't know how so many things are going to shake out. But I think that, you know, getting the process going, understanding the landscape and just kind of getting to know where everyone's coming from and, and what their priorities are is, is just a, a really important thing. So, um, we'll continue to have a couple more virtual sessions. In fact, one of which, if, friends in the media are listening to, um, you know, please reach out to me because um, one of the things we'll be doing is uh, getting folks in the media who cover um, these technologies together to listen to them um, and, and sort of find out what, what their needs and desires are for, for language in this space. And um, so, you know, we'll keep listening to a bunch of, of stakeholders and, and see where we're able to go with it. So the uh, media, the media thing though, when, when does that happen? Like uh, people just send in, It'll be, we haven't scheduled it yet. Um, it'll probably be after this comes out, you know, at least, at least a week after this comes out, probably more like two or, or even three weeks after this comes out. So if you're listening to this fairly, fairly shortly after release and, and this sounds like something you'd like to be a part of, um, and, and please, we, we would love to like, this is really, it's super important to, to hear from you if you're covering this space because you do have a unique perspective that even I don't have anymore because I don't cover the space, uh, as a journalist. So, um, we really want to hear from you. So, so if if this if you're listening to this within a week or two of, of it coming out, um, please like hit me up on uh, uh, on Twitter. You can DM me. My DMs are open, or or uh, you can send me a, uh, an email at edward.niedermeyer at gmail.com. Edward, what if any relationship is there between the AUVSI nomenclature effort and SAE and 
the levels? The level committee, talk to us about that. Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, I think that, you know, the SAE J3016 um, standard, the, what everyone knows as the levels of automation, um, is kind of the elephant in the room in this space. And like, it's a fascinating example because it's both um, the most popularly adopted, but also like one of the most commonly misused uh, sort of standards. Um, and so I think there isn't like, a, so SAE thus far has not been part of the conversation. Um, and I'm not really, you know, I can't really talk about sort of the specific input that, that folks gave in our first listening session, but I think just at a very high level, you know, I think everyone knows that, that the SAE levels for better or for worse are, are here to stay, um, uh, at, at the moment at least. And so I think that, and, and also by the way, I mean, that's one of the hardest things to standardize um, in this in this area. I mean, even standardizing vehicle types or like system types is easier than standardizing sort of the levels of automation or the different human roles in levels of automation. Um, but, you know, to be clear, we also, so I did a preliminary report so folks would have some information about this as we discuss it. And I've learned a lot about a whole bunch of other standards, including NASA has a whole taxonomy for, for autonomy uh, that's very, very different than SAE. It's similar in some ways, but but it's much more specific and detailed. Um, uh, NIST uh, uh, has standardized language for the military. Um, there's, uh, well, it's, it's sort of, it's a whole framework for, for sort of contextual autonomy and, 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 and vocabulary. So, at this point, um, you know, we haven't, we're not far enough in the process to know like where all this is going to really, you know, come down, where, where, where AVSI is going to want to, um, you know, focus the standardized standardization efforts first. But I don't like my general sense at this point anyway, is, is that it probably, I don't think, I, I don't think reinventing the SAE levels is, is necessarily going to be, um, a, it's certainly not the easy path forward. Um, but I think, you know, sort of finding ways to create, um, a, a sort of better popular language around this, um, that, that can help sort of clarify the SAE levels might be interesting because the SAE levels, as we all know, are great from a sort of engineering perspective and even for like well-versed, you know, policymakers or whatever, but it's the, it's, it's the popular level where, you know, people get confused. And so maybe there's ways that, that, you know, without changing those levels that, that we can come up with some terminology that helps make it a little bit more comprehensible. Got it. So it sounds like a fun adventure. So like the most fun happy. thing one could do. <laughs> I who would right? not enjoy that. <laughs> and I'm so happy I'm not participating in that. I oh. think I'm also so happy I'm not participating. Although I have to ask, has anyone asked about my idea from 2017 for the term geotonomous, uh, that has they, not. Come they have up not brought yet. it up. They haven't. That has I, not come was, up yet. Was I too dumb, too smart by half, or just ahead of the time, ahead of the curve? Well, I think I think actually one of the ways that that that's a really interesting um, uh, idea is that you know maybe there's a system of like suffixes and prefixes. So we can, you can use sort of commonly used terminology and just attach, right? So like robotaxi is one of those terms that's, that's, that sort of started to catch on a little bit. Um, and it's because people understand what a taxi is that keeps them anchored in something that they understand and just adds robo to it, uh, which sort of implies, you know, this, this new thing. And so I think geotonomous, it's, it's a two part word, right? It's a two part compound word. And maybe there's a way, one of the interesting kind of things that we have discussed is maybe there are interesting ways to kind of create a system where you can take common words and add either a prefix or a suffix to them, um, that creates a new word, uh, that is, that is not entirely unfamiliar. Um, so I think, look, Alex, you know, you, your status as a, uh, as a pioneer in this field is, is, is well established. Um, You're too sweet. Think, no, I think you've, I think you're, you know, look, like, you have to experiment, right? And experiments are by definition not always going to to succeed. And I think that one of the things I've learned about this space is that, you know, you can't be afraid to to suggest things and to try things that may not necessarily work out because you never know when that might actually inspire people to come up with something that's like a, a different version of that 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 is better. And I think, you know, that that sort of suffix prefix idea is really interesting. Um, You're very sweet. 
Well, well you're doing the Kirsten, Lord's work, Ed, and so well, congratulations. Kirsten, you're not you're not getting off scot free. You are definitely you have to be at the at the media listening session. Uh, and really, all you have to do is give your is give your opinion. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. But I'm also really looking forward. Speaking of traveling, to the mm. fact that all three of us are going to be together for the first time since. And correct me if I'm wrong, but would it be CES 2020? Was that the last what? time we were all together? Is that true? Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. CES 2020, the last time we were in a room all together. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. And Thanks so to the tell pandemic. folks where we're going to, we're all getting together. Oh, why we're getting together. Yeah. Um, well, Alex and Ed are going to be coming to San Mateo, California. So the Bay, San Francisco Bay area for TechCrunch mobility sessions, which is our two day, um, in real life event is back. We've had it every year, but, um, obviously we had, uh, <laughs> had to go virtual for a couple of years. So this year we're going to be back in, in person, May 18th and 19th in San Mateo. And then on the 20th, we're going to have a, an online day. It's, it's really going to be mostly like highlights of the last week. It gives people who are international and who can't really um, attend a, a way to kind of participate in the event. But we're also going to do one online interview and that's with VW CEO, Herbert Deese who was unable to manage to get there physically. So he's going to be there, but it should be good. We have a lot of cool stuff, um, including we're going to do a startup pitch off. So we're going to have some judges there, six startups. Um, we're going to also have a student pitch off, which is going to be virtual. So encouraging students to pitch off their, you know, next big, great mobility company. And then really heavy on the autonomous vehicle discussions. We have a ton of people um, who are going to be there. And also two vehicle reveal up close vehicle moments. Um, so Can you tell us who's there going to be? Yeah. So if you remember a couple of years ago, Zooks unveiled their vehicle virtually, which was cool, but it was on a video screen. So... Uh, that vehicle, their custom built vehicle is going to be there. Uh, I'll be interviewing. Actually, I don't know if I'll be interviewing, but um, I think uh, one of our other editors is going to be interviewing Jesse Levinson. So he'll be back um, to talk about the vehicle, but also to talk about what Zooks is up to. And then Arrival, which is a really interesting EV company, kind of looking at changing manufacturing and using these micro factories. They are building a custom vehicle for uber and they have shown a picture of it uh but no one's ever seen it been able to look up close to it and that will also be there um so those two vehicles are going to be kind of revealed on stage um we're gonna be talking about that but you know it's funny i'm looking at the list and it's like basically the guest list to our anti-ces party (laughs) so kind of everyone who's anyone so, right. So, uh, I'll be interviewing Austin Russell, the founder and CEO of Luminar on stage. Uh, I mentioned Jesse Levinson over at Zooks. Um, we are going to have Laura Major with Motional and Oliver Cameron from Cruise. I almost said Voyage. <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to have actually um, Taylor um, Ogan from Snowball Capital is going to be there. So that should be spicy. And uh, Sterling Anderson is going to be there. And Rebecca Young from uh, FedEx is going to be there. So, oh, Argo will be there, of course. Uh, Summer Fowler will be there. So looking forward to that. She's going to be on a panel um, with, uh, let's see, who is that? Allison Malik, who is a friend of Atonicast and a former um, co-founder of May Mobility. But now is at um, reimagined mobility. She's the executive director there. So we've got we've got a nice mix up of people. We've got uh, the cruise uh, guys, uh, Charlie Miller and Chris Velasic, who are best known as the car hackers. Um, oh, and uh, Ralph Gilles is going to be there. Wow, we like Ralph. He's cool. That is, that is if, so. Yeah, like all people that 
we've, I think we've hung out with at, at our party. Most of those, most of those folks have been at our yeah, party. Yeah, there are a few people or, who have, like, have been on the guest. show. Yeah, or who have been on the show. So it's, um, it's going to be really cool. Um, one person who we who has never been at our party, but I'm really looking forward to meeting is Sarah Tariq. She's over at Nvidia now, but she's uh, really incredibly smart, and her expertise is around perception. And she was at Zooks um, a few years ago. But now she's over at NVIDIA. So I'm really looking forward to meeting up with her and talking with her about um, one of the many paths to autonomy. So I don't know. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And and if you don't know, I mean, so this is the is this the third, fourth one that you've done? I think this is the fourth. So the first one was yeah. in 2019. Um, and yeah, so it should be good. We're really looking to continue to build the event and make it big. But most importantly, and really the only thing that matters for our listeners is that the three of us are going to be there together and um, we'll be mixing it up with founders and want to hear your ideas. And maybe we'll even record an episode or two. Wait, I have um, a question. At yeah. wait, We're going to have, are we going to be hanging out offsite, perhaps just us? I think, with some I of think these we folks? might. Yeah, I think I we're going to try. It's TBD. Um, but I think we'll, we're planning on having a Twitter spaces next week, right? So what's the date on that, Ed? Uh, we will be holding our Twitter space at uh, on Wednesday, the 11th of May uh, at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. And uh, you should go ahead and follow uh, the Atonicast account uh, at the Atonicast on Twitter. Um, we'll be going live from that account um, at first, and uh, Alex and Kirsten and I will all be there. And this will be exactly one week before mobility sessions begins. So, um, and I just want to be clear about this TechCrunch mobility thing. If we're there, can we trust that you, Kirsten, will enforce Chatham House rules if we hang out offsite amongst friends? I'd like to be able to say what I think. And others to feel the same way. Of course. It, the, the rules that apply to our anti-CES party will apply here. Um, so, yes, you can feel safe to tell me all of your secrets and what you're working on. So don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Basically, uh, basically, if, you, if you're at Mobility Sessions and you see one of us, um, hang out and, and we, will, uh, we will definitely end up at a an offsite location at some point. Yeah. And, and actually we might, we might have that. something that we can talk about at Twitter spaces, but it's in progress. And so we'll see. So I, I'm not going to say anything now, but uh, potentially a really fun offsite thing that we are working on. So um, with that, I think I've shilled enough for mm-hmm. TechCrunch. Although I will say it's, it is a pretty, I'm pretty excited for this um, event. So, and I'm actually really excited to just see you guys. It's been a minute. It's been I'm way excited too long. to see you too. Cool. Um, we should talk about some news, though. Has there there's has been there been any news? Happening. Well, so to me, the big underlying theme this last week and a half has been earnings madness and volatility. Can anyone say mm, it? Volatility. <laughs> so as we speak, I'm uh, looking at Lyft shares in like a double digit free fall that I've haven't seen in a long time. I think down so, 24%. To be clear, when you say volatility, that's a fancy way of saying stocks don't always go up. Correct. Sometimes <laughs> they go down. Sometimes they go down. And so so when I'm looking at uh when I'm writing about a company that has uh, is publicly traded, you know, a lot of folks will look at a very limited amount of time. And I always like to go back year to date. And uh, it's always, it's a fun thing to do, especially with Tesla stock back in the day, because uh, up until the past year and a half, you would see these massive swings, um, very high, very low. And somehow by the end of the year, they would match up. So there'd be a lot of money won and lost in between, but no change really. Obviously that's changed with Tesla and it's been on upswing but even Tesla was victim to the volatility masters this week. Um, basically, investors, I think, you know, selling due to concerns about Elon Musk uh, putting its putting his bid in for or attempting to acquire Twitter. But there are other fundamental reasons that we're seeing um, shares fall. So I thought we should look at Lyft. 
uh, since they reported their earnings today, their aftermarket shares went down 25%. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is that they beat um, expectations on revenue, but, and, and the rep, and they are seeing like them, you are seeing them dig out of the COVID-19 pandemic hole when everyone stopped writing because no one wants to share. Uh, but that didn't please investors too much. And I'm wondering if the same thing is going to happen with Uber tomorrow. Although Lyft and Uber are slightly different in that Uber has a delivery business, Lyft does not. And um, and Lyft concentrates on a very specific market, whereas Uber has tried to be more global. So Ed, Alex, do you have any thoughts about the this tiny look at uh, earnings? The Lyft Uber story? Well, I mean, if you go back to when was I think we had Nathaniel Horadam on the show in 2018, uh, somewhat prematurely, uh, but very, very accurately predicting one of the big challenges that both of these companies face right now, which is labor. Like ever since, right? So, so Uber and Lyft were both founded sort of in the midst of what we called at the, the time a, a jobless recovery, um, right? In the in the aftermath of the the, the great financial crisis and um, and the recession, the recovery was very much a jobless one. The labor market was very weak, and so there were lots of people who couldn't get work, you know, at the kind of traditional full time job, and um, and so that really flooded the gig economy. And there was sort of a double whammy of, you know. Private venture capitalists were pumping money into the companies because uh, the valuations were going up, and that was allowing them to subsidize the rides. On top of which, people would drive for cheap because there was really not a lot of other work to do. And today, we're in like a totally different situation where like inflation is rising, and specifically like labor costs are really going up. I don't know about you, but uh, everywhere around here, there are ads. Uh, every single fast food place has you know giant banners you know, saying, please come work for us, $15, $16, $17 an hour more for managers. Um, and so, you know, the low end of the of the labor market is uh, is a tough place to be. Um, also, it's hard to get new people into the, the driver pool because, you know, cars are undersupplied, right? And, and so, like, one of the important ways of getting people in was you could sort of say, hey, go buy a new car. Maybe we'll even help you with that a little bit with a loan or something. And then, um, you know, you can help pay it off by, by driving for Uber or Lyft. Well, it's, you know, cars are, are getting more and more expensive all the time. Supplies are short. It looks like that um, the supply chain issues are going to be with us for at least another year. So, like, there's some re- real headwinds here. And um, I think the biggest X factor of all of it is the is the labor market. Like, I I don't see a ton of it. I'm not a, you know, labor market economist, um, but I play one on this podcast right now. Um, but like, I, I, I haven't really seen much that suggests that, that, you know, those high labor costs are, are really going anywhere anytime soon. It looks like people are kind of assuming they're, they're here to stay. Um, yeah. The, and- the labor issue is, is an interesting one, but actually I think you hit on something in terms of the cost of, of car ownership, because both Lyft and Uber have set these pretty large goals and, in terms of hitting, you know, an all electric fleet, yeah. Um, which of course they can't demand that drivers do this. They can only create incentives and programs in order to encourage that or uh, connect them with companies that are providing leasing uh, arrangements, which may or may not be the best terms for these people. And EVs overall are more expensive to buy now, there might be a fuel savings for sure, but um, EV savings um, are one of those things that's a return on investment. And I'm not sure how the federal tax credit would even work for someone leasing a vehicle and whether they can apply that. So uh, the folks might be compelled to switch to EVs right now because of a rising gas prices. But if you're an Uber driver, the upfront cost might be difficult, which will make you turn to leasing, which may or may not have the best terms for you um, overall. So that's a conundrum. And in a real one that I don't think is going to go away because inflationary pressures and supply chain constraints, we're just not seeing costs of vehicles go down. And by the way, gas is getting more expensive, 
right? So that's Correct. another cost that that adds into this. But you're right, and and the the EV market thing is interesting because you know, I mean, look at Tesla, right? Tesla, the Model Three was supposed to be you know a big affordable car that was gonna you know break open the mass market. No, no, no. And I'm just saying, like, you know, the companies that are you know, it's it's actually it's it's going to be easier in the short run for certain companies, the ones the EV the EV startups that are positioned in the premium space. So you know, Tesla, uh, Rivian, Lucid, firms like that, they're not building huge volumes of cars now. Of course, they need more chips per car than than others probably because they're sort of generally higher tech. But like, they're not building in huge volume. Um, but like, the demand for these vehicles is 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 very strong, and the supply is low, and so you know, um, price increase, like Rivian had to increase their prices and they're getting away with it. Right. As far as, as far as we can tell, like it hasn't hurt demand. And so, but, but for the Ubers and the Lyfts, if you want an electric fleet, you know, in a ride hailing business, you know, you need affordable EVs. And right now there's like no incentive to rush out affordable EVs because you want to get as much profit as you can per unit, because the amount of units that you can build is limited by these supply chain issues. Mm Mm-hmm. Well said. So what I'm curious about is tomorrow when Uber reports their earnings, if delivery, if there's if there's any upside on the delivery part, because uh, they have seen their revenue go crazy with delivery, but their costs <laughs> have not really dropped. So it's not as if basically it's a classic case of having a lot of business, but like still losing money and lots of it. So if you look at their adjusted EBITDA numbers, which is one metric of profitability, but not the real metric of profitability, um, they're doing both doing okay. But when you look at gap measures, it's a different story. So we'll see what happens tomorrow with Uber. But these two companies aren't the only that companies that are obviously reporting their earnings over this last week and this week. The big really leg, like. What? Kirsten, sorry, before we move on to another, because I know there's other stuff we want to discuss, but I actually really want to get Alex's take really quick here because like- I, w- I would love to comment on this, but Lyft is an investor in Argo. And okay. I just don't, I think this is just well, right up against the boundary of what I can talk about. Okay. Let me ask you this then, Alex. Yes. Generally, not talking about any specific companies here. Yes. Argo is in, among other businesses, including delivery, uh, is in the robo-taxi business. Um, mm. A lot of people have been very skeptical about ro- the economics of robo-taxis. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, some of those questions are, are maybe valid and, and interesting and provocative. But I'm wondering, I, it seems like most of those those questions sort of came during the golden years of 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 ride hailing uh, when, you know, sort of some of the factors that we just discussed were in play. And now with labor being short and and potentially being short for a long time, I mean, is there a general sense that like, that these are sort of long-term dynamics that are going to sort of really, you know, support uh, this, the, the robo-taxi business uh, just because the, the number of people who are willing to drive for not much money is, is just going to keep shrinking or how does this play into it at all? I don't know. We're talking generally here. Generally. We're talking generally. Does this make you more bullish about robo taxes as a business is how I would ask that. Well, I'm bullish in general, or I would not work for a company that's in sector working on one of those, one of those aspects of autonomous vehicles. But, uh, you know, there was a it was an article that came out like a, yesterday or the day before, and uh, I think the first line was um, autonomous vehicles colon it wasn't supposed to be this hard, <laughs> but actually it was always supposed to be exactly like this. Um, a couple of companies always assumed it would take this long, if not longer, and many did not. Uh, I th- I mean obviously the driver shortage and the uh, fallout of of COVID just shines a spotlight on the opportunity. It all comes down to, can one bring the cost of the autonomous vehicles down and get the service reliable enough to, to feather into existing networks, uh, you know, and or supplement existing networks in such a way that a better product is available on the market. This is, all of this is inevitable. Um, you, I mean, 
you can't, the audience can't see this. I'm actually hand waving as I say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, all this is inevitable in the same way that, you know, if you go back to the history of trains and aviation, um, it, it's like looking at early airlines and airports and saying the service isn't where we want it to be yet, but clearly there's demand. Well, clearly there's demand and the service isn't where everybody wants it to be yet. Hmm. I'm curious, you know, it makes me think too, that, um, not just, not just whether the robo taxi, uh, will provide a buffer, if you will, for companies, uh, ride hailing companies that partner with AV companies. But I wonder what this means for a company like Arrival trying to produce what they say is a cheaper EV, um, mm. more cost-effective EV for Uber drivers and for fleet drivers, right? Not just Uber, but like fleet drivers. So curious to see if like one of the big things that will shift, this is kind of getting away a little bit from ride hailing, but the cost of EVs in general is this shift to, to more um, 3D printing to different ways of manufacturing that get away from the traditional way of manufacturing. Um, I'm, I kind of, have been hearing a little bit more about that lately than I used to. I mean, 3d printing has been around for a long time, but I'm hearing more serious people talk about it. That is interesting to me. Um, and maybe in direct reaction to how supply chain can really hurt us, um, and put those price pressures, pressures, not just on the consumer, but other businesses. Well, you know what's cool, interesting about Arrival is the same guys or uh, a couple of the principals are the same people from Robo Race. Uh, right. It was, there was some interesting stuff going on there. I mean, what I, – I, I don't know the answer. What is the – is there a magic sauce at Arrival? Is there something – is there a special sauce there? I guess you're just going to have to go to the mobility event and listen to Avinash uh, Rugabar, the president of Arrival, talk to me. I'll be there. Uh, so, I mean, I think I think that one of the there, questions there, I, I think hope, there is an interesting thing though. But go ahead, uh, Ed, sorry. Uh, one of the questions I hope you ask is is sort of what is their plan if they're going to make an affordable car for for Uber drivers, as they've they've said, um, and I think they're going to show right at the um, at the event. You know what is their plan to make sure that that they have enough chips to to supply those? Um, and that's the other piece of this too, right? Is that is that okay? So you have the labor headwind, which which kind of makes it, you know autonomy more appealing, but then you also have the supply chain headwind, which will probably be resolved sort of in the in the nearer term in theory. But if that is a structural thing longer term, then you have a really interesting like advantage to AVs in that. The AV and like the the robo taxi business in particular is all about serving as many rides as possible with as few vehicles as possible. So while the AVs will, um, you know, without a doubt, require more chips per vehicle, um, and uh, one AV at least hopefully is going to be able to serve a lot more rides than one human driver uh, with a car that they own. So there's some interesting potential there as well. I think maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've seen. I think a new appreciation of supply chain. Like I, I, two years ago, if someone said that I would be writing about supply chain constraints in almost every single earnings article or any other article, by the way, um, you know, I obviously am aware of supply chain and what happens, and that's why tier one suppliers and tier two are so important to automakers, although they rarely get discussed. But now we're seeing a huge concern that everyone's aware of and even the general public is aware of because they're now seeing the impact to their wallet. And when you see companies like Ford GM, which are creating these different strategies to deal with uh, supply chain constraints, seeing how it impacts uh, newcomers like Rivian, which, you know, they've, they've said that they have the production capacity, but because of supply chain constraints, they've been slow to deliver vehicles. I mean, these are all hugely fundamental things to a business. Um, but to me, what's kind of the most concerning is, sure, supply chain constraints will eventually, based on what is happening today, change and get some relief. However, let's not forget that 10 years from now, Every automaker claims that they're going to have a completely or almost entirely EV f- portfolio, 
which is going to be a totally different kind of com- supply chain constraint. So my long view is, is this isn't going away. This is actually going to get worse. Yeah. Alex is deep sighing. Yeah. I, 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 I never, the stuff about the battery, the precious metals required for the batteries. I, I keep thinking about something that you said, Ed, that I actually agreed with, <laughs> which mm, is that um, all these cars uh, that are being sold, the batteries are too big. Like this obsession with having a vehicle that has to have 400 miles plus range, um, because that's what internal combustion cars, I think, average out to, is it's like a self-imposed it's a self-own for manufacturers and it's the Achilles heel of future battery supply chain because most people just don't need it. And it you're carrying the weight, the cost of the battery, the weight of the battery, what it does to your um, efficiency, whether the battery's full or empty doesn't matter. Unlike gas, as like the, you, you consume it, the weight of the vehicle goes down and there's actually some benefit there. Uh, this is a real problem. Uh, moving forward until you see battery chemistries radically improve, power density improve. And I really think that somebody, some manufacturer, some car company out there needs to come out with a vehicle that is smaller, lighter, just as safe, that is a smaller battery, and that that smaller, lighter vehicle with a smaller battery, that the range being less is like is a marketing point in its favor. And someone needs to embrace that concept uh, as opposed to making it the enemy of a car you want to buy. That's, that's really bad for the whole industry that's, and for, and for the country. So considering like, that who, though, who, Alex, who, like who, do, who's going to make like a mini moke, but like one f- product form factor up from that. So like a Renault Twizy. I don't, I don't know, but, but see, this is where I feel like it's a little bit of hopeful thinking because we exist in a world in which the EV Hummer is 9,500 pounds. Well, and no, absolutely. We're we're existing in, we're existing in right now what is clearly ramping up to be a, a battle between EV pickups. So how do you, I I think that there's a market for it, but I just don't see any company except for maybe a startup going after that market. I think it, maybe it's a startup. I mean, before we move on from this, uh, y'all know Wes Seiler, you know who that is? Yeah. He, uh, you know, he was a automotive journalist. Now he's kind of an outdoorsy guy, writes for Outside Magazine. He, I mean, he's into, he's like an interesting character because he's, you know, a, a Democrat who's into hunting and guns and he writes all kinds of things that, that really upset people on both sides of the spectrum. So I like him. Uh, and he wrote a review of the hum, the electric uh, Humvee, Hummer, which just blisteringly took it apart because apparently it's, it's unusable off-road. Um, and I'm sorry, but this, the electrification of things does not necessarily make them better as products. It really doesn't. I mean, I'm all for electric vehicles, but that, that is a monstrosity. I'm sorry to say, you know, I I like to be nice and fair to all, everybody. That thing's a monstrosity. And, um, well, I guarantee (laughs) you there'll be more monstrosities coming and they will probably sell very well. And, you know, there's also a bunch of companies, including Ford, GM, Rivian, um, that are going after the EV pickup truck market. And Mm. one could argue as well that there's two arguments there. You could say, well, if we convert people who are existing like um, F-150 fans to convert to electric, well, that's an elimination of tailpipe emissions. And that's potentially great. You could also look at it another way and say, how many of these people who are owning these trucks actually need a truck right now. Hmm. If you drive in rural Oklahoma or through Texas, you're going to only see two brands of trucks and you're only Mm going to see mostly trucks. But the interesting thing is, is that now if you drive in a city (laughs) or in a urban sprawl environment, you see almost just as many trucks. I mean, you see a, a, a greater mix of different vehicles out there certainly. And you see a lot more, um, you know, foreign brands in cities as opposed to in middle America. And I'm basing this after off of my twice yearly road trip that I take every year. 
and it hasn't changed. Like it's, it's like, whoa, a Buick, like that's like a, a big thing. So how is EV like cr- putting this emphasis on EVs for trucks really? It's like, it's not helping the environment and it's certainly not like bringing down the weight factor or necessarily really helping in terms of like congestion and things like that. But, but then again, none of these automakers are in that business. They're in the business to sell vehicles and Americans like big trucks and they like SUVs. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, I don't have the answer except yeah. to say that none of that's going to work until the charging networks, the, the non-Tesla charging networks become serious and just, they're just not oh, there yet. Agreed. Well, and even, that, and even then, crazy. and even then, I mean, you know, uh, if you think about the Bay Area, you know, poor people have to drive, you know, hours to get to get into their jobs because they can't afford to live anywhere close. I mean, people who are, you know, this is one of the the really kind of ugly underbellies of the of the current EV market is that, you know, the people who can afford the EVs love to blow smoke up their own orifices about, you know, how they're saving the planet. But in reality, you know, they're getting a cool thing uh, that makes them look and feel cool. And yeah, like uh, the reality that everyone's just going to be able to do that is 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 a long way off. And and actually, I just want to just as a counterpoint to what Alex is talking about with with the Hummer, because I mean, I do I absolutely agree with with what he says. I mean, I think it's sort of the the most caricatured of of this whole space. But I think with Rivian too, you have some interesting similar dynamics in that in that. You know, the chip shortage is the issue right now, but they've said that like battery, you know, battery material supplies are, are a major issue as well. So even when we, we deal with this supply chain, you know, shortage with the chips, there are others waiting to happen. And to the extent that they're being solved, it's all almost all happening in, in China, although we are seeing the US government get involved a little bit. But meanwhile, you know, we have this sort of, you know, hype bubble that's still and and you know some of the things we're talking about here about the the market with stocks going down uh you know sort of seems to suggest some of that is coming to an end but you know here's Rivian saying we've got a chip shortage we're looking at a battery shortage and oh by the way you know we we we're building in in limited quantities because of them but oh by the way we just got 1.5 billion dollars to build a second factory when we're not even maxing out the first and so there's this other pressure to just grow 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 because of you know this is sort of the the mode that frankly like Tesla has, you know, it's the norm that Tesla has created in this space. Well, I will correct you on one thing. I don't think Tesla created this space of having to have multiple factories. I think that like in the past when I've talked to legacy automakers at the highest level, like the highest execs, the feeling is, is that unless you are at like above 300,000 production capacity a year, you are not going to unlock any profits. So I think that 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 pressure is coming from all sides to hit those production capacity. I'm not saying that your end point is incorrect. I'm just saying I don't I don't think it's just coming from Tesla. I think that like the conventional wisdom in automotive is that, you know, X amount of annual production capacity equals profits and that anything below that, unless unless you're like a Koenigsegg or something like that, where you can have you know, make very few high margin vehicles, um, you know, for everyone else, it's all about volume. Yeah. But also, I mean, look at, you know, Tesla is profitable, right. And they, and they have now multiple factories. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, that's, that's, a uh, their prices are, are going up, right. It's so, so it's, it's, we're in an unusual situation at, at the moment, uh, and I think, you know, one of the big questions is just how long that that really lasts. I think the, of course, you know, scale rules the auto industry. And, and of course, Rivian, if it wants to survive, has to get scale. The question to me is, you know, do they need to build a second factory already uh, when by their own admission, they're not even, you know, that they're just, they're limited at their current factory. Like, it still kind of reflects that even though it's, we're seeing the beginning of this bubble start to, to deflate, that there's still, you know, this sort of need to just kind of keep, keep pushing forward um, it, rather than taking our time and, and sort of growing at a more sort of methodical rate, which is, well, has been the also be in, the ar- EV, in the business. It could also be argued that the, there's a lot of debate over the next three years, uh, economically, and if you sure. can build a factory, 
you might want to build it now. For sure. Yeah. You might be find yourself in a very different environment in the future. That's why I'm very more and more interested in different manufacturing ideas. Not that I'm necessarily sold on the whole micro factory thing. I mean, we saw local motors do, you know, try to push that. And obviously they're very different from arrival, but they did push that and they don't even exist. I think that their domain name is right now being bid on and they've sold everything else off for parts. So I'm not saying that like micro factory equals success or different, but I, I do think that like at some point there's an interesting startup out there potentially, maybe, I don't know, like hopefully working on, or maybe a, maybe a major legacy automaker working on like ways to um, make manufacturing more efficient and less reliant on what is our current traditional supply chain. Well, and if the chip like thing the keeps up, maybe designing vehicles needs to be thought of differently. I mean, right now Tesla's been shipping cars without a GPU um, in them that that hasn't really been used. It's it's so that you know it's because Musk has said, oh, you know, we want to be able to play cyberpunk or whatever, like graphics intensive games in the cars in the future. Well, you know, Tesla, of course, is is comfortable just sort of shipping cars without you know components and and. Uh, you know, letting yes, but Ford and GM and BMW and others are doing the same thing. Like they're no, all no, shipping I agree. without. Okay, but my my point is is that you know maybe maybe this will you know force a reckoning, which I think is long overdue. Of like, how much of this stuff do you really need in a car when you have an incredibly power device, powerful device, which by the way is competing for the same components that you can carry around in your pocket? Why maybe maybe this will push car d- on the design side towards simpler you know machines to be driven, right? Uh, rather than, you know, something that has to look like a smartphone because that's what the future is and 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 there's some kind of cachet to that. So well I, not just cachet, know. not just cachet. I mean, I think that automakers for years have been talking about, you know, all these possibilities due to connectivity in the vehicle, but they didn't quite honestly have the ability to do so. Now they finally are, and every single one of them has dollar signs in their eyes because this is a true opportunity to, not that they'll necessarily be successful, but it's a true opportunity to actually try and sell um, consumers who are in captured, you know, a captured audience services and other things in which they could drive more revenue. I'm not saying it's going to work. Yeah. So, and that's the point, right? So like car Elon said when the Model S came out and, or was they showed the prototype in 2012, he was like, oh yeah, we have, we have a, you know, developers working on apps. There's going to be an app store. You know, here we are 10 years later, that still hasn't happened. Having an app store for cars is really hard. And guess what? The app store is what makes smartphones, smartphones. People don't get this. It's not because it's not the touchscreen that makes a smartphone. That's part of it, I guess. But really where the, the, what turns it into an economic, you know, a, the, the foundation of our economy is the app store. And no one really has a, a meaningful app store that's like a, an actual differentiator. And until they do, you like, mean no this car, is all no just car, no, no car, car. no, yeah, no car. What name, right. Google wrong? and Apple obviously have a great you know, substantive, substantive, uh, app store. And we'll see what Apple does with their car. Right. But like, like so far, none of the car comes. So it's like, if you don't have, uh, if you can't have an app store and there are some very good reasons that that don't get talked about a lot about why having an app store for a car is really, really hard. If we don't get to that point where there's a viable ecosystem, where a car becomes a platform for third party developers to create the next Uber or the next, you know, whatever else it is, um, then cars will never have the economic potential of, of smartphones. And we're all just fooling ourselves. We're all just saying, well, you know, if the car looks like a, a smartphone, then, you know, maybe someday it, it will be one, but like it, that's, it's delusion. And, and some, at some point, if, if the supply chain shortages keep happening, there'll have to be some kind of reckoning about that. Well, that sounds like a dystopian future that I don't want to be a part of, Ed. You want to be, you, 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 you're holding your breath for, for apps for your car. I want to be able to game. I want to be able to buy coffee and have it delivered to me. I want to, I want to conduct business. Well, that's the future. Someone, I don't want to be a part of anything. I don't want to be part of anything that requires me to, you know, do anything manually or like get out of my vehicle and walk anywhere. Yeah, the Wally or uh, yeah, the the Wally future is what you're <laughs> is what you're looking for. Um, 
Hey, you know, we'll yeah. get there someday. We'll get there someday. Good. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to that day. You know, we discussed prior to recording that we were going to make this a nice short news episode. And then, of course. But um, it's Ed. Ed just has so much to say. He does have a lot to say. These are interesting topics, guys. Yes. And before we break up this episode, before we break this up, did you, when you were in Miami, where did you stay and did you enjoy the public transit options? So when I was in Miami, I, I was only there for two nights. Um, and, uh, I stayed in South beach and I did not enter a vehicle the entire time I was there. I walked the entire time, which is too bad because I really did want to ride in one of Argo's AVs. I saw them. They look great. They, I did not see them do anything embarrassing. So good, good work, Alex. <laughs> Can't take no credit for it. It seems like a very interesting job, company. Alex. Fine, way, to do, way to go with like, the, uh, the tech. I think there's some fine technology those folks have, those Argo people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I first, I really enjoyed Miami. It was, it was the first time I got to just kind of spend time, free time there. Um, and, uh, I'm really looking forward to coming back and, and writing in an Argo, hopefully with my good, my good dear friend, Alex Roy. Um, and you can show me all the, the cool spots to go. You can come stay with me. I guess cool. that wraps up today's episode. Yeah, it does. Uh, on one final note, when we're all together in a couple of weeks, maybe we can try and get in some other AVs together. Yeah. If only activity. there was a company in San Francisco claiming to offer rides to the public that actually offered rides to the public. If only that company existed. Well, maybe we'll have to go out, uh, have a drink somewhere late at night in San Francisco and see if we can't actually access those AVs. Would, wouldn't right. that be amazing if someone offered that service? You know who offers that service? In Chandler, Waymo does. You come down to South Beach, Argo Lift, try, check it out. <laughs> well, and on that trollish okay. note. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was like extreme troll. I just heard a rumor, I heard a rumor that, that Waymo does it. I heard that. Maybe someone else does too. Okay. Well, All right, wrapping up, will the Atonicast get to ride in an autonomous? But you know, in fact, I just realized the other day, I think it's been like three, it's been two years since I've seen you both in the same place. It's been like, I think three years since I've ridden in an autonomous vehicle. So I am actually really mm. looking forward to doing that. Hopefully we can do it at mobility sessions. Will it happen? Won't it happen? You'll just have to tune in and find out on another episode of the Atonicast. 